Hold on to your butts. <laughs> you were saying? Welcome to episode 77 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. Tonight I am joined by the most awesome Civil War ner- nerd I know and the guy who has put up with my Tuesday moods, especially when we record late on a Wednesday evening, Darren Weeks. I am merely his crazy Canadian co-host, Mary. Uh-huh. My alter ego, Funko Mary, apparently lives with him in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And you almost said almost those, all those words, right? So yeah, so if this is one of the later you've done this. Very this exciting. Is, so how yeah. are you? What's, what's going on with you? I'm all right. We're finally into, uh, obviously we're now into March, getting well into March, which is nice. So spring is here i've been hearing the robins in the morning which is nice it's a little bit more daylight how about you what are you up to well rains every day it's cold i know i hear about it i hear about it new england in spring so we are getting there so it's okay though it could be worse it could be snow it could be i'll be bitching about the heat soon don't you You worry about that yeah if you're not bitching um, so about a hoodie that you don't have, you should be bitching about the weather, right? Okay. Well, all right then. That hoodie is now safely tucked in my closet. <laughs> but in any case. So when what's we go going to Chickamauga, are you going to make sure you buy a hoodie? I don't know. I don't even know. Maybe I'll just not get one just to complain. Maybe I'll do that. We'll see what happens. So probably. I will buy that hoodie just so I don't have to listen to that. <sighs> yeah. Great. Anyway, fantastic, as being fantastic. as I am hosting tonight and doing about as um, train wreck of a job as what we witnessed in the general movie we watched a couple weeks ago with Buster Keaton, which uh-huh. is amazing. Anyway. By the way, it's not Michael Keaton. It's Buster Keaton. I, I just said Buster. Too. No, but you told everybody you said it was Michael Keaton. I said, no, it's Buster Keaton. You said Michael Keaton, Batman guy. I did not say that. Okay. Are you, are you lie, you're only hurting yourself. Anyway, go, 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 on, go on. Oh, my God. This is... Yeah. Anyway, so, so, sir, what are you drinking tonight? Sir, what happened to governor? What happened to that? Oh, anyway. right, right, right. Let me correct myself. Sorry. Well, we'll delete this. We'll just, okay. we'll just edit that we'll one out. Edit that one out. Okay. What are you well, drinking what, tonight, governor? Well, Mary, I don't know if you know this. It's uh, it, yesterday was International Women's Day, right? And you're the only international woman I know. So in your honor, Ooh. I had to drink Labatt's Blue today. Ew. I had to do it because I have to represent. I had to represent the international woman who I know. And the only <laughs> sweet, coffee mug oh I have God. that has a woman is Mary Surratt. So I'm drinking out of my Mary Surratt mug. Sort of appropriate for the episode we're going to talk about, sort of. It's, it's, she's going to be mentioned, but that's what I have. So now uh, that being said, what do you? What, what's your story? What, what are you drinking? I mean, first of all, it's funny that you have the Labatt Blue because the girl I'm going to be talking about tonight is actually Canadian as well. So, I mean, I guess we'll pay a little bit of homage to her as well with that. Um, I am drinking Robohop by Great Lakes Brewery out of Toronto, which is just a random IPA. Yeah, I couldn't find one in relation to international. National Women's Day. And my mug is my, yeah, again, the background fucks with that. Mm-hmm. It's my George Mead mug. I'm ashamed to say I don't have a mug with a female from the Civil War on it like you do. So that makes you just that much cooler than me. Um, that is true. But I picked General Mead because Sarah Edmonds, uh, the girl I'm going to be talk about, talking about, actually served in the Army of the Potomac which General Meade was the commander of, although they weren't, didn't, he wasn't the commander of it when she was still in it. Yeah. So we're anyway. going to talk about, we've got some copilas. So we're going to talk a little second Michigan today. We're going to have a little fun with that yeah, little thing. So we will. we'll talk about that. But right. as you, I don't know if you know this, Mary, you probably don't, but it's officially Women's History Month around these parts. Okay. Shocking. And Anybody watching this can see that I've got know, my Goddess of Victory shirt on, and which so, was, and, I have, a shirt that says goddess of victory on it which was our friend over at the tattooed historian john heckman mm-hmm. he made these shirts mm-hmm. in for women's history month of 2019 well i mean i guess considering it is women's history month i'm going to refrain from making fun of you know making fun of all of rotis howard's running abilities and 
the Cleveland Indians, and of course, DQ. I'm, I'm going to play it straight. I'm oh gonna, my gonna, God, you don't nice have to. to. You, Mary. I, I'm, I'm going to be nice to you. I, I feel like I have oh to. Oh my God, does this and, mean I can be an absolute bitch to you then? So as we were saying, okay. Anyway, so to, to that end anyway, I thought if, I, we talked about this. We thought it'd be fun to take a break from the Civil War battles and the carnage to talk about some women, talk about some of the things that they did yep. for their respective causes. Uh, they don't want to get the credit that they deserve. Now, when most people think of the Civil War and they think of women, they you know, you saw a lot of folks automatically think of nurses. You think of Dorothy and Dix. You think of Claire Barton. Yeah, um, uh, Bickerdike as well. People also, that, like, the other role they had, like, that I read an article was as a camp follower. And it's like, oh, they did more than that. Exactly what you're saying is it's, it's important to know that women did a lot more than that. I mean, we're going to talk specifically about two roles tonight, one of soldiers and one of spies, okay? What we're going to do is we're going to each talk about a specific one, and then two weeks from now, we're going to come back, we're going to do two more. That's what we're going to kind of do, okay? So so tonight we'll do part part one of female spies. Tonight we're going to talk about women, Mary. All right. Yes, we're talking about, about, yeah, we are. There was was approximately... 250 women who served in the Confederate Army and 400 in the Union as soldiers. Now, some of these soldiers were actually like field nurses, like the the girl I'm going to be talking about. She was a field nurse, but she actually does have some combat experience and all that. But women definitely played a role in the Civil War. There was many of them that who did that disguised themselves disguise themselves you know just in doing my research i think for as many as we know that these you know 650 apparently there had to be so many more than that um well there was a lot of you know that and our were, friend lisa samia we'll have on it pretty soon it's about yeah. the nameless and faceless women of the civil war yeah. and there's countless of them for so many ones so there are countless women that we could discuss there's no question about that and this is a subject that people should absolutely study more but we've decided like i said to each choose one for tonight yeah. just so we can go i'm going to talk about sarah slater mary okay the woman they called the elusive veiled lady we're going to talk about her you know slater she also went by kate thompson she went by olivia floyd also went by kate brown and she still remains one of the most mysterious people uh, male or female of that era that is still studied today right well there's not Um, even a a photograph of her right is there there isn't and she's a truly truly a true enigma and because of a lot of studies that we'll talk about especially some recent study into her it's she's kind of getting a little light shine upon her her background led to her to become one of the most valuable members of that confederate underground that network to canada mary speaking of canada again Ooh. and she also has a has a you know a dotted line to you know to the lincoln assassination yep, we're going to talk about mm-hmm. Real, what I want to do, Mary, is I want to talk about who is this mysterious veiled lady that we talk about, the Sarah Slater. So Sarah Antoinette Gilbert, Mary, she was born in Middletown, Connecticut, of all places, another Connecticut person, born in January She's 12th. She's from New England. She is, January 12, 1843, to Dr. Joseph Gilbert and Antoinette Reynaud. They called her Nettie. That was her nickname mm-hmm. growing up. And their family had French heritage. They spoke fluent French on the, in the household. They were, they were French-speaking people, right? Their family did break apart. Dr. Gilbert would uh would move in with his two sons as well as uh, as well as Sarah to, to Goldsburg uh, Goldsboro North Carolina and then eventually she moved to a place called Kinston North Carolina. Now, Antoinette, the mother, she stayed behind with the couple's oldest son, and what was weird about it was Antoinette was pregnant at the time of the split. Now, I'm not going to make any 
make any guesses here, but I'm going to guess that pregnancy is probably why they split. And it's probably a story that's probably best set for a Springer episode. Uh, but that's what that's that's what you happened. are but, not the father. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, in, in the winter of 1860, 1861, right? 17-year-old Sarah. Okay, and her brother Robert are going to move to New Bern, New Bern, North Carolina, and this is where she really blossomed. Okay, by all accounts, and this is the one constant about Sarah Slater is that she was an absolute knockout. That's what everyone seemed to say mm-hmm. about her. She was described as exotic-looking, an exotic-looking French-speaking woman with dark hair and dark eyes, and she was the obvious object of attention for almost every guy. That's just seemingly that's how it was. Now uh, she was said to be beautiful, charming, and intelligent. You know, while she was in New Bern, you know, she was boarding with the family of a guy named John L. Pennington, who was the editor of the, of the New Bern now uh, Progress newspaper. Right. So she so she was kind of making connections. Now, one speaking of connections, Mary, one night she's going to meet a guy named Rowan Slater. Now, he was a dashing dance instructor at the New Bern Academy and their romance. Their romance took and took on the image of a 19th century dirty dancing is what it did. Now, there's no record if anyone tried to put Nettie in the corner. We don't know, okay? <laughs> but I will say that relationship really blossomed. Now, mm-hmm. Rowan was the son of a rich plantation owner named from Rowan County, and he uh, and Rowan graduated from Trinity College, and he studied violin and dance. So, he, you know, that's what he was he was into, right? Very musical. It was, okay. It wasn't long until Sarah and Rowan became hot and heavy, right? Mm. And they, they quickly fell in love. And in June of 1861, just one month after the state of North Carolina seceded from the Union, they get married. Sarah's brothers, um, the three of them anyway, they all signed up to fight for the Confederacy. And eventually Rowan did as well. And he's going to sign on to Company A of the 20th North Carolina. They were known as the Carabas Guards. He signed on sometime in 1863. The 20th North Carolina, Mary, in case you're curious, their original commander was Alfred Iverson, right? So it all kind of ties together, right? Now, there's... I tried to find when he signed up because I was curious, okay? Because if he signed up prior to July of 1863, Rowan Slater would have been in Gettysburg and he would have been part of that infamous ill-advised Iverson's Pitts March with the 20th North Carolina. That 20th North Carolina, if you remember, they took 65% casualties that day. They lost 122 men in the field uh, near Oak Ridge. Now, if he was there, he survived it and he will make it all the way to the end of the war. The The 20th Carolina was at Appomattox in April of 65. They made it all the way to the very end, right? Before Rowan goes off to fight, what he does is he brings Sarah to his parents' plantation, okay? Because, and this is in Salisbury, North Carolina now. And he does it because he doesn't want her to be lonely at home and bored and all that, right? But it doesn't take long for Sarah to realize, guess what? Rowan's parents, they don't like her too much. In fact, they hate her. Really? Why? They just don't like her. I mean, they're, they're... high level family who knows who knows why but what they do is they make sarah into like a like a housemaid like a maid thing so she's 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 like a servant so she that's the job that she has and she so she hates it and she is miserable okay she's um she's like you with you know crack that last beer when someone steals it on you that's right when you do this month i know i can't be nice can be mean to you i forgot i promised but she is miserable okay what she wants to do her mother is up in new york city and she wants to go visit her mother because she, I mean, she hates it there. She wants to see yeah. someone she, that she knows. She wants to go see, wants to go see her mom who's up in New York City. There's a problem though, Mary, is that New York City, I don't know if you know this, is in the north. And so she has to cross 
into enemy territory. So what she has to do, she has to go to Richmond, okay? Yeah. And she has to get a pass to go to New York City. And she goes to Richmond, and when she does, her life is going to completely change when she goes to Richmond. Intrigue. Right? Intrigue. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. Anyway, so so while she goes to Richmond, okay, she's applying for a pass to go to New York City, right? She is noticed by two people, Secretary of War James Sneddon and Secretary of State Judith Benjamin. Now, it's likely she was noticed because of her appearance initially. Boys will be boys, Mary, okay? That's probably why she was noticed, right? <laughs> but they all they started talking to her, and they were suddenly captivated by two things, how smart she was mm-hmm. And that she spoke French. And they sat around and said, shit, you know what? This might be somebody we can use. Oh, I think I know they're, they're going to send her. So exactly. So what, what they were looking for at the time, and this is getting towards the late in the war now, they're looking for someone who could pass between the United States and Canada and who, who could pose as a French-Canadian citizen and go to Montreal and not raise suspicions from anyone in the north. And they found her, and they were like, "Oh my God, we've you know finally right." She so she agrees to this. Now, whether mm-hmm. she agreed to it because she was bored, I mean, her husband's fighting a war, and she decides she's going to take this dangerous job, and she just, she just does it. So she probably is yolos it right. She's told that if she's ever caught, that she's going to sit there and say, "I'm a French citizen. I want asylum. Take me to the French embassy." Uh, I, I, I'm not part yeah. of this whole thing, right? They For the Rebs, they found the perfect spy to go back and forth to Montreal now. It was right under their nose, right? This is, again, I said before, this is getting towards the end of the war. Yeah. Her first assignment's not going to be until February of 1865. I so was reading that about is, her. Right? She's, very, she's getting started very late in the war. But they give her an important task on day one. You know what her task is? Her task is to, is to deliver money and more importantly, deliver documents to those Confederate soldiers who pulled off that raid at St. Albans in Vermont. Yeah. That's her job, right? So St. Albans raid, okay, uh, was that plane that was 26 Confederates who were, were going to sneak down from Canada into Vermont, and they were going to rob a bunch of banks. And what they were going to do was they were going to try to raise money, but they were hoping to scare the shit out of the Union guys so much yeah. that it was going to somehow pull troops away from Petersburg because they were all sieging that area, right, and send them north to defend the northern border. And that's what they were hoping for, right? Yeah. This about moving, you know, don't forget that manpower thing we talked about, right? And that's kind of what the plan was. But the Raiders, they did get the money, okay, um, and they successfully got back into Canada. But what happened when they got back into Canada? Guess what happened? They got arrested mm-hmm. by the Canadians, who probably said, "Sorry, we have to arrest you." Sorry, sorry. Right? sorry. yeah. The Mounted Police show actually but, no, it wouldn't have been in the Mounted Police. No, they it's probably wasn't. It's probably, <laughs> you know. but they arrest them. Thinking that they're they're just they're just American bank robbers. Yeah. And they would that and that's what they were. So what they were gonna do is they arrest these twenty-six Confederates and they're gonna extradite them back to the United States mm-hmm. for trial. And these 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 guys are scared shitless because they know the second they go back, their identities are gonna be found out, okay? It is the Confederate Raiders, and uh, unfortunately, they'll have to be hanged. That's probably what's gonna happen to them, right? Yeah. So what happens is papers that Sarah had were documents that proved the Canadian authorities that they were not bank robbers, that they were Confederate mm-hmm. agents. And as soon as she showed up and showed them the Canadian authorities these papers, they said, okay, well, they're Confederates. Now we're not gonna extradite them anymore because we're not gonna do it because now they're, they're they're Confederates. So bad. And guess what? And by the way, we're gonna set them free. We're going to let them go. And that's what they did. Right? And my country it's, was like neutral, supposedly. You know, <laughs> in the, in the, in the, in, and so it was an important mission, right? And the thing about Sarah is whenever she traveled, she wore a black veil. 
Okay. And it's why she got the nickname, the veiled lady. Um, she is so that she did this primarily because she didn't want to be seen. Right. And allegedly she got so good at her disguise uh-huh. that even her own Confederate fellow operatives didn't, they faked, faked them out too. She was that good at wow. it right off, right off the bat. Right. Now, unlike her peers like Belle Boyd or, or, uh, or Rose Greenhow, mm-hmm. most of Slater's activities um, are really unknown to this day. Um, she really, the, what they know of is that she participated in three, three missions. The first one yep. was the St. Albans mission, right? Um, that was the very first one. Now, after she, after she left Canada, after dropping off those papers for the St. Albans guys, right? Yeah. She found herself in New York city of all places, Mary. And she is going to, and she's going to meet another rebel, uh, courier. She's supposed to meet a guy named Augustus Howell in New York city. That's who she's supposed to meet. Mm. Augustus can't make it. So he sends someone to stand in for him to go meet Mary, um, to go meet um, Sarah Slater. The guy who he sends to go meet Sarah Slater is a guy named John Surratt. That's who she sends. Wow. Okay. So she sends John Surratt to go meet Slater. Now, what's um, in the plan was um, Surratt's going to meet Slater and they're going to go back to Washington, D.C. and they're going to meet up with Howell at that point. That's how it's going to go. I can't make it. Go get her. Bring it back to Washington. We'll have big kumbaya. Who knows? We'll mm-hmm. see how that's how it's going to go, right? So Surratt has no idea what Slater looks like. No idea, right? So she, he, she tells him that she's going to meet him in front of what's called the A.T. Stewart's department store, which is a real swanky, fancy little department store in New York City. Allegedly, Mary Lincoln used to shop there, Mary. Not you know, shocked that, at that. all by that. Anyway, Is that where she bought all the flood but, dubs? <laughs> probably. But what she did was <laughs> So, so Slater told, um, Slater told Surratt, I'll be in front of the store and I will have a horsehair switch that I'll be twirling between my fingers. That's how you know it's me. And so that's she like did some that, kind okay? of Barton key shit with the handkerchief. It, like it, 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 who knows, but that's, but that's what she did. And that's how they, they find it. So Surratt meets her and goes, Oh my God. And is like Gaga over her. He can't, but he can't believe it. So he's, um, he's completely enamored with her in his heart. So, um, he, he, you know, he, he tells, um, he tells a livery stable owner named Brooks Stabler. Okay. Great name for a stable. Stabler. Okay. So <laughs> did he own Stabler he, he, stables? Uh, maybe he did. Right. But Surratt tells him that he has a woman on the brain. Right. In that, cause he was immediately oh smitten with this drop dead dime of a confederate operative that she sounds like you she know wants, from right? what i know about john surratt it sounds like he might have banged anything that moved so well yeah well, you have to get in line <laughs> for this one right but that but so, so but that that meeting that takes place in washington dc uh between slater and augustus howell and john surratt's going to take place in front of uh, in front of a boarding house on a 541 h street which is owned by john surratt's mother mary Okay, Check out my background, meet. YouTube okay. watchers. Yep, there you go. There you go. So, um, and then following that meeting, um, they're going to head down to to Richmond, right? Now, whatever Sarah's second mission was, this is the completion of her first mission. The second mission takes place in March of 1865. So look at the timing here. So this is getting close to the end, right? And again, it's going to involve a trip to Montreal. Now, she made it there again pretty much without an issue because she has no real problem. Um, on her way back to Richmond, she's going to stop again and spend the night at Mary Surratt's boarding house. This is a March 25th, 1865 in Washington. And reportedly, um, Slater got the attention of another, another person who lived in the house, a guy named Louis Weichmann, Mary, okay, 
who apparently was Gaga as well, oh. and happily gave up his room so she could sleep in it if she if she chose to. So he gave up his he gave up his room for her. So I don't they, know why that were, is creepy. It just is. It, it just is. But for, she she had a way. Uh, she just she just did right now. Um, whatever message that Mary uh, I keep saying Mary was Sarah was was carrying from Canada uh, must have been pretty important. A Confederate agent named General Edward Gray Lee, who's up in Montreal, he's going to write earlier on March 20, 22nd, that he um, he held, he wrote, I helped to get the messenger off and I pray she may go safely. So they were good. Whatever this was, that whatever the message was, it was must have been pretty important, right? Now, not long after Slater is going to arrive at Mary Surratt's boarding house, Sarah, John, and Mary are all gonna are all gonna leave together from Maryland. They're all gonna go because mm-hmm. they're supposed to meet up with Augustus Howell. Augustus Howell is supposed to help Sarah across the Potomac to get to Richmond, kind of like you know George, you know Atzerod when you talk about Booth down the road, yep. right? Yep. They're supposed to help ferry uh, Sarah Slater over the, over the Potomac to get to Richmond. Okay. Um, there's a problem though. Okay. The problem is they find out when they get to Maryland. That Augustus Howell got his ass arrested, and he ain't coming, yes. right? So they find they find out that he's been arrested. He's been hauled off to the old Capitol prison, right? So guess who happily joins and signs on to help her cross? Of course, is John Surratt. Of course, I'll do it. So he's going to do it, and he's going to actually take Sarah over the river and go all the way back to Richmond, right? They're going to get there on April first, eighteen sixty-five, and right before they head back to Washington on April third. This is going to be Sarah's third mission and the third and final one. This mission is going to take place while the Confederacy is falling. Okay, with the rebel capital about to fall, Sarah is going to is is given instructions and she's given she's been entrusted to take a bunch of rebel gold. Okay, and take it to Canada, and then to Montreal, and then direct the authorities to send it to England. Okay, so they gave her the Confederate gold. Okay, wow. that's what they gave her to do. So um, on the third, both Sarah and John Surratt are going to get back to Washington, and they're going to meet with an actor named John Wilkes Booth. And it wasn't long; he <laughs> was. And so they're going to meet around the third, and then Sarah is going to leave with the, with the gold, and she's going to fall off the planet and disappear with the gold. She's going to gone. She's, that's seemingly what the dick happened. She's yeah, go. and that's that's where this the story is so intriguing because when you and I have talked about her before, like that's kind of where we left off, right? Like we just assumed she was gone. Right. And mm-hmm. something happened to her, but as you discovered, well, that's not the case. Well, well, it, right. So, so the whole, the whole thing is, um, the whole thing is basically she, she disappears. Now, 11 days later, Booth is going to shoot Lincoln. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and what's going to happen is this mysterious veiled woman is going to be a subject of a lot of talk mm-hmm. because people see her but don't see her face. Don't know who she is, but yep. they know she was there. So during this investigation, testimony about this mysterious woman, always wearing a black veil, hanging around the Surratt boarding house, is going to be mentioned, but her identity is never really established. Right? Reportedly, one of the conspirators, George Atzerodt, we talked about a few minutes ago, he describes her in the testimony of. Of all about 20 years of age, good-looking and well-dressed with black hair and black eyes, with a round face, who knew all about the affair and added, she went with Booth a great deal. Now, again, we talked a lot about Atzerod, and he was trying to spin. He was trying to save his ass. Right? Oh, of course he, he was. was. He, Absolutely. He, he was the one who was, was pointing fingers, trying to get off, and it yep. did, didn't work out. 
Now, the authorities, okay, were never able to prosecute Sarah Slater because they never really knew who she was. And she kind of disappeared into obscurity, right? Mm -hmm. She kind of remains an enigma until the mid-1980s. That's how long this took, right? When a historian named James O. Hall was able to piece together the history of Sarah Slater. Now, this Hall, um, if you study Mary Surratt, the uh, Surratt Society, you know who he is. He's a researcher who spent yeah. over 50 years studying the Lincoln assassination. And he's remembered today as being one of the absolute gurus of John Wilkes Booth, the Surratt family, and the Lincoln assassination. Um, if you go to Surratt's Tavern in Maryland, yeah. uh, there's a James O. Hall Research Seminary, mm -hmm. and it's got thousands and thousands of books of, of, about that there you go to yep. you can actually go visit it today you can't take a book out but you can study there it is the holy grail of booth and assassination stuff if you ever get a chance to go down there okay mm. but this is what they discovered hall did sarah slater didn't really disappear mary after the war you know what she's going to do she's going to reunite with her husband rowan remember him the confederate yep. she's going to reunite with rowan, rowan slater but guess what happens right when they, they meet she divorces him she dumps him which is weird whoa it doesn't that... happen that often what okay? the hell so she divorces him, and she moves to New York City, where her, her mother originally was, right? right? Yeah. She gets she gets remarried to a guy named J Jacob Long, who is the superintendent of the Harlem Gas and Light Company, and he's also a local politician. Now, Long is about 20 years older than Sarah, so he's an older guy. Yeah. He's going he's gonna to die in 1889, and Sarah's going to move to Poughkeepsie um, and begin work as a nurse of all things. This is Sarah Slater now, right? Poughkeepsie, in case you're curious, is 80 miles from Albany. In New York, oh in, my case God. In, case, in, case you, in case you're curious where that is. I've okay? been to Poughkeepsie, whatever it is. Yeah, okay. Well, you've, you've been to Albany, too. Anyway, I've been to Albany. So, Albany. So, so, jump, so jump ahead now. Jump ahead a little bit up to 1912. Sarah's sister, Laura Spencer, okay, she's going to die in New York City, okay, and make Laura's husband, a guy named William White Spencer, a widower. He's a union vet. He's a Civil War union yeah. vet, this guy, okay? So just about a year later, and before Laura's body's cold, William gets remarried to guess who? Sarah Slater. Oh, wow. Laura's sister, right? So, and the happy couple is going to move uh, from Brooklyn to Manhattan. So she's going to marry her her sister's uh, ex-husband uh, there. Now, Sarah's going to become a widow herself uh, not long after William is going to die in, in October of 1914, right? Sarah's going to go back to Poughkeepsie where she'll live the rest of her day. She's going to die in June 20th of 1920 of kidney disease. Mm -hmm. And she's buried today at Poughkeepsie Rural Cemetery near her mother. Now, funny thing, we talked about this recently. The funny thing about her grave, okay, is whether it was by design or by accident, but she made her birth date 14 years later to be younger. And a lot of speculation wow. was, it just a mis was it just a mistake or was it um, – to hide her identity or just be, to be younger who the hell knows but 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 that's how it says right um that's so crazy Sarah's, i just thought of another person who kind of obscured their birth date and that was dan sickles <laughs> oh yeah there you go so but sarah's life from the civil war whatever role she played in that lincoln assassination is always going to be an enigma and many, a lot of people try to tie the pieces together but there's just you have to kind of fill in the gaps there's just not a lot yeah. out there mm -hmm. um Something she's something she's a vital link between John Wilkes Booth and Richmond and Montreal. That there's, there's, maybe there's something to do with that. Um, but the big question about Sarah is what happened to Confederate gold, and that's the interesting thing. Yeah, about this it, right? is the one thing I've been really looking forward to you talking about in this episode oh, so, is this Confederate gold. So she leaves, 
in the gold vanishes and they don't really find it. And yeah. Every so often you'll see historical shows with the Confederate gold. They it's here in Canada it, somewhere. Well, well, they, they talk a lot about Jefferson Davis taking the treasury and there's all that. But she took a lot of money with her and no one really knows what happens. But here's what's interesting. And most people thought for the most part that it was just lost to history and whatever. But when she dies in 1920, she, she leaves a will. Now, this is a woman who, you know, she was basically she only was a confederate operator for about three months so you can have yeah. a long time to make money she um she didn't really have a lot she didn't really work mm-hmm. she didn't come from a lot of money i mean she, rowan slater you know, she, he he had money but um but she didn't really get much of that right so when she, she had when she died she had no debt which is rare okay she paid for her gravestones herself she prepaid it and she left several interesting items in her will including mm-hmm. jewelry made of gold in ivory a uh, diamond lockets gold bracelets cash payouts of um worth thirty thousand dollars in today's money to random people and friends not to mention the countless gift cards to dq she left that she must have got okay <laughs> yeah, the DQ. But, but, but the reality and, and again you know no one knows what happened but for a woman who didn't have a lot who disappeared with money. She had a lot to give at the end and a lot mm-hmm. of strange gifts that she gave away. Yeah. Um, and again, this is just speculation. No one knows if this is the Confederate money, but it's just funny when you think about it, that, you know, is, is, is this part of that money that she was entrusted to deliver to Canada that didn't seem to go anywhere, mm-hmm. but we'll never know. And that's what makes history great about this stuff, especially hers because there's so much intrigue to her. And Very so she's, much. she's fast. She's fascinating to study again, someone who, you know, her husband goes off to fight and she doesn't like her in-laws. Well, you know, a lot of folks probably do. And she ends up with an opportunity to kind of fight for the cause. And she wasn't a big, crazy Confederate rah-rah person, a greeno type person. But whatever whatever drew her into it, she embraced it quickly and she really took off with it. And she really made a quick name for herself. The Lady in the Veil is, is one of those great Civil War spy mysteries that we'll never really know. And Hall did a good job digging out a lot of it and shining a lot of light on it. Mm-hmm. But again, no one really knows. No one really knows what, what her deal was. No one even knows what she even looks like. That's what's so cool that's about a, it. That's an interesting thing about her. The intriguing thing about her is there's no picture. You know, I mean, you did awesome with this. Like, I remember when you were telling me the other day, because we had one perception of her that we don't really know. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, we were talking one day about this episode and you were like, she's got a will. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, and this is... I mean, it, it goes back to what is fun about doing this is the stuff that you find. You know, she she is a woman from the Civil War that she clearly has a huge role, but we'll never really know what that role was, especially when it comes to the Lincoln assassination. Um, the fact that she was never questioned, right? Like it, she was well, never they, brought they, in they, as they, a witness because nobody well, knows well, who see, the fuck she well, was, see, see, right? Even, even that they don't know because there, yeah. there are some reports that she was brought in and interrogate oh, or somebody okay. who or someone who may have been her but they didn't know who she was they did bring in some people who you know could have been her and they yeah. talked about her but who but whoever they did brought into they released her because there's no no one ever saw her so i mean by all accounts she did disappear there are some there are some reports that they did bring her in dirt after the assassination but i think the reality she probably was gone at that point she was probably on her way mm-hmm. wherever she did go um, she probably made it as far as New York City and stopped there. But again, um, that's the thing about it. This is not one of those situations where you can sit there and look and read and read memoirs and know exactly what happened. Yeah. It, whatever happened to her is whatever you want to happen to her. Whatever 
that that's what the cool thing about it. If you want to believe that that, that she gave away all that gold um, and all that Confederate money, then then knock yourself up. But there's no, there's nothing to tie it together. Yeah. But it's one of those great open-ended stories that you can speculate forever about. It is. And I love that you picked her as the the woman you chose to talk about. I mean, I've learned so much about her. You know, like, I mean, we've discussed her a few times before, but to know about this will and all the stuff that she gave away in it. And it's just, it's like, wow, like, where did she get the money to do that? <laughs> You know, it's, and that's what's really interesting. And the, the Confederate gold thing is something that comes up all the time and really intrigues people. We'll never really know, right? I mean, she may have hit the New York lotto. We'll never know. She may have had, she may, you know, she may have had some money that just wasn't reported about it, but it's, yeah. but it is convenient. And it just is. And you know what? Everyone likes a good, uh, a good, you know, mm-hmm. a good story, a good mystery. And that, that it's certainly the, the Sarah Slater story is definitely one of the, the better mysteries of the Civil War. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because it is a true mystery, right mm-hmm. to the point where she yeah. covered her face with a veil all along, which, which, which made it good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we'll never know. And she might have been, you know, maybe she was a vital piece of that assassination. Maybe she, she could was. have been. We'll never but, know. But, you know, but we'll never know. We'll never know. But it's, we'll leave it to you to speculate, Mary. We'll let your mind wander on Sarah Slater. So what do you got? I have our second Sarah for this, which is um, she's actually Canadian. I know my, my country was not the country of Canada, but they were still referred to as Canadians. We were a British colony at that point. But I'm going to be talking about Sarah Emma Edmonds. She was born in 1841 in New Brunswick, Canada, um, which at the time, as I said, was a British colony. So she's born out in the East Coast. She's on the islands. So she's born Sarah Emma Evelyn Edmondson. She will later be Sarah Emma Edmonds, and she will also be known as Franklin Flint Thompson. So this is a woman who disguises herself as a man to join in the efforts for the Civil War. So her father. She's also, I was gonna, I was gonna say, she's but, also known, Mary, since St. Patty's Day. She was also known as a woman named Bridget O'Shea. She was. Who was a Irish peddler selling soap and apples. Yep. So she did it all. So oh, she. <laughs> it, the funny thing is, is the one thing I've learned about studying some of these, uh, you know, looking at some of these women to look at for our episodes, you know, is they had quite, you know, they had a bit of a drama in them, almost like an actress, you know, like I think. Uh, Pauline Cushman was an actress. Mm-hmm. They learn how to play these parts quite well. And, and Sarah Edmonds is, is one of these ones. And I'm going to explain why soon, like why she just was so, I think what inspired her to do this was something that was really interesting. Um, so her father had been hoping for a son to help with his crops because he was a farmer and he resents his daughter and doesn't treat her very well. And that's be also because her older brother had epilepsy. So there was no way that he could help his father in the capacity that he needed to, unfortunately. So her father took his anger out on, on Sarah, unfortunately. Um, she grows up near Fredericton, New Brunswick, which is the major city in that area. Um, she becomes an accomplished horseback rider she could shoot really well. She was an excellent swimmer and she loved climbing trees. At the age of nine, she's given a book about the adventures of uh, Fanny Campbell. Fanny Campbell is a female f- pirate. Um, this is a book written by um, Maturin Marie Ballou in 1844. And it's about a young woman who lives in Lynn, Massachusetts in the 1770s. And her fiance ends up getting kidnapped by pirates and Fanny decides to rescue him by dressing up as a man and she calls herself Channing. And the book is said to have heavily influenced Sarah. And you can see that not only in her career in the Civil War, but in her memoirs as well. Her memoirs are well worth checking out. 
Um, she is just, you can tell she's into the adventure of it. And I'm sure this is like anyone who writes memoirs. I'm pretty sure she probably embellishes, but you can tell she's into this adventure. But at the age of nine, she's given this book and it, I, I don't think it, it not only heavily influences her, but I think it's a comfort for her because her father does not treat her well. So she can go into this world where she is pretending she's Fanny, you know, and she can go on a, an adventure and all that. And it helps her to gain this independence, but she also gains it as we're going to see from her mother as well. Um, at She's eight, she's 15 years old when her father arranges a marriage for her. And she wants nothing to do with that. She pulls out her fuck this card. And she's oh. like, nope, not doing it, doing this. And you know who helps her get out of it? Her mother. Her mother um, helps her run run away. And this is at the time she changes her last name to Edmonds. Uh-huh. And she lives and works with a family friend where she made hats. And within a year, um, she has a successful millinery shop, which is where you make hats, in Moncton. And she's the co-owner of it. But her father eventually finds her and demands she returns home. But she doesn't want anything to do with that. She's like, I'm not going back. Forget it. I don't want into your arranged marriage, whatever. Um, So she moves to St. John and she assumes a male identity. And that's where she takes takes on this name of Franklin Thompson. And she says of this in her memoirs. I think I was born into this world with some sort of dormant antagonism towards men. My infant soul was impressed with a sense of my mother's endured wrongs. And I probably drew from her my love of independence and my hatred of male tyranny. Ooh. Which is, it's it's really interesting she says sounds, that. But sounds, sounds fun. She does. But it's it's really interesting because when, when we get to the end of her story, you know, she's not really against men. It's a man who she serves with that helps her get the titles and the pension that she eventually gets. Um, But that quote was really interesting. So as I said, she assumes the name of Frank Thompson and she lands a job with Hurlbut and company, which was a Bible bookseller and publish it publisher in Hartford, Connecticut. And new England was where she decided to call her home. Like she completely split splits from Canada and she's like, Nope, not staying here. I'm going to go to new England. So she sells Bibles door to door. And her boss said that Frank Thompson was the best salesman he'd seen in 30 years. Sure, old job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Former retailer, which I was like, I'm so proud of her for this. I'm like, oh my God, she's a, <laughs> a minute to talk about Oliver Otis Howard. God. There's her Howard reference. Actually, no, that's not our only Howard reference. Oh, good. Trust me. Stay tuned, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the outbreak of the Civil War, she's in a place called Flint, Michigan. And this is believed to where she adds into her name. Um, she becomes Franklin Flint Thompson just because she really liked it in Flint, Michigan, which um, I don't know if you've heard about Flint, Michigan. I've been, a, I've been in Flint, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. They, they have a mall that has a fish in it that is like 50 years old. Yeah. Anyway, cool. it's weird. Yeah. yeah. And they have water issues. Um, anyway, um, so she writes memoirs after the war called... Um, nurse and spy in the Union Army. And that's where I get a lot of my quotes that are directly from her from. Um, Uh So she enlists in the Union Army as Franklin Flint Thompson, and she enlists as a field nurse. So she's not going to be like a combat soldier, although 
she does see some combat in the Civil War. She's very patriotic. Um, the one, as I was reading through her memoirs, um, the one person she made me think of was Rufus Dawes for the yeah. level of patriotism uh, that she had. And this is a person who is not an American. You know, she's uh, she's Canadian. And she said, war, civil war with all its horrors seemed inevitable and even then was ready to burst like a volcano upon the most heavy and prosperous nation the sun ever had shone upon. The contemplation of this sad picture filled my eyes with tears and my heart with sorrow. It is true, I was not an American. I was not obliged to remain here during this terrible strife. And she goes on to say that she could have returned to Canada and she would have been welcomed by her family. I think this is an area in her memoirs where she's kind of I don't know, embellishing a little bit because of just the relationship that we know she had with her father, but she was close with her mother and I think her siblings as well. But oh. she's very much, throughout her memoir, she's very patriotic. For someone that's not born in the U.S., like, you know, say Rufus Dawes was, this this girl, she's, you know, crossed an international border to come into the country and she's like, you know, she hears about the Civil War and she goes and enlists. She's very pro-union and she wanted to help. She's always very, re she's also very religious, as I'm going to get to in a little bit. Uh -huh. um, and she said, I, I think this is going. Mm, yeah. I thank God I am permitted in this hour of my adopted country's needs to express a title of the gratitude which I feel toward the people of the northern states. Um, so she enlisted 10 days after Lincoln's call up for troops. She goes to D.C., um, she is part of the second Michigan. Which is yeah, it's cool. interesting. She's, she's part of, she goes to company F, which is yep. interesting because you, you know who the recruiter was for this, the, 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 um, the, for Michigan there was Israel Richardson, mm -hmm. who got, who got the more, who got the, yep. took the shell over there in Antietam. Um, and she'll be under a guy named Francis W. Kellogg. Yep. Right. So she joins a pretty, a pretty good regiment right off the bat. So that's, um, it's interesting. And, and we'll, as you'll, we'll find out as you talk about it. Is she finds her way into a lot of places now. Oh, with, she with these Michigan with these Michigan men. She absolutely does. Like she mentioned, she's in Baltimore uh, after the riots occurred, but she makes a point in her memoirs of mentioning the six Massachusetts. She arrives in D.C. She visits the temporary hospitals, and she notices there's lots of illnesses like typhoid fever, and there were thousands of men to take care of. Um, and she said, but for. For these, the government had no provisions as regards more delicate kinds of food, nothing but hard bread, coffee, and pork for sick and well. And she said that the Sanitary Commission had not yet come into operation, and the consequence was our poor sick soldiers suffered unspeakably from want of proper nutrition. So she is seeing this as she comes in here, you know, that these guys are, they're sick, but, you know, the, the men who are healthy are also not getting the nutrition they need. But she's describing the conditions in D.C. as not being very good, just all the sick. And the war uh -huh. hasn't even begun yet. Like, they haven't even fought a battle. Um, right. She talks about her experiences in the hospital, the suffering of the men even before First Bull Run. Um, so July 15th, 1861, the second Missi Michigan is ordered to Bull Run. And this is what she has to say about that. In gay spirits, the army moved forward, the air resounding with the music of the regimental bands and patriotic songs of the soldiers. No gloomy forebodings seemed to dampen the spirits of the men. 
I felt strangely out of harmony with, with the wild, joyous spirit which pervaded the troops. I thought many, very many of those enthusiastic men who appeared so eager to meet the enemy would never return to relate the success or defeat of that splendid army. She's got a very different attitude going into this. Now, whether this is, you know, we're talking about, she's writing about this in 1865 after she's experienced this. So, I mean, we don't know 100% of this is her thoughts, but it's um, it's interesting to read this. And it's at First Bull Run that she's going to witness the first man getting killed. And she said, like, uh-huh. a shell just comes along and rips his legs off. Um, and she said, now the battle began to rage with terrible fury. Nothing could be heard save the thunder of artillery the clash of steel and the continuous roar of the musketry. She said, the one thing she said that was really, I found shocking in her memoirs was many that day turned their backs upon the enemy and sought refuge in the woods. Some two miles distant were found torn to pieces by shell or mangled by cannonball, a proper reward for those who insensible to shame, duty or patriotism, desert their cause and comrades in trying hour of battle and skulk away, cringing under fear of death. She's hard on these guys who are running away. Well, she, you know, it's funny how you mentioned the Rufus Dawes comparison because it's actually very appropriate. And as well, as as this book goes a little further, you'll be able to see more of the comparisons. Mm-hmm. But a very patriotic person who finally gets into battle, unlike Dawes, we really took him to Second Manassas, and we'll talk about Second Manassas here in a few minutes mm-hmm. with her. But, but, um, but she really gets her sees the elephant there if, if right at the beginning at Bull Run. Yeah. No, she she does, and she says that she had gone to war with no other ambition than to nurse the sick and care for the wounded. I had inherited from my mother a rare gift of nursing, and when not too weary or exhausted, there was a magnetic power in my hands to soothe the delirium. And so she she's a caregiver. I mean, this is the kind of she's very much a female who is a you know today she would be called a tomboy. You know, she can climb okay. trees, she can shoot a rifle, whatever. But she's also got that, I get, I don't want to say feminine, I, you know, but she's very much, she cares a lot. And well, you know, see, we'll see her, we'll see her history, you know, going forward with her experience with, with, you know, as a nurse. And so and she does a whole, she kind of does every job possible, a courier, a spy, a nurse. And so oh, she yeah. does it all. She, oh, she does like the Swiss combat Army thing knife, too. You know? Um, but I think, I think she definitely cares. I mean, it, it all starts with caring. She cares about the union and that, that was her, her, you know, her caring. So, you know, she has that really, hard, obviously the bad background with her father, um, uh, being born the wrong gender. Yeah. She's punished for that. Like she can do anything about that. Um, and she really spends the, the early part of her life kind of finding that thing to gravitate to. Yep. Right. Uh, and, and so finally, you know, mustering you with those Michigan men, uh, in company F, she kind of finds her calling. Um, and that's what's interesting about Sarah Edmonds is that she, as 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 her life continues throughout this war and, and things happen to her that for limits to what she can do, she keeps finding different things to stick around, which is really neat. Oh, she does. Right? Absolutely. She's so patriotic. And she's also very descriptive when when she's talking about the battle. And I think we do see that like later on in Rufus Dawes' memoirs, too. Um, she said, the sight of the field is perfectly appalling. Men tossing their arms wildly, calling for help. There they lie bleeding, torn and mangled. Legs, arms and bodies are crushed and broken as if smitten by thunderbolts. The grounds is crimson with blood. It is terrible to witness. Um, and then she says, after Bull Run, she says, that extraordinary march from Bull Run through rain, mud and chagrin did more toward filling the hospitals than did the battle itself. There are great strong men do- dying all around me. 
and while I write, there are three being carried past the window to the dead room. So she's writing about this too um, in a letter as she sees this. Three men being Uh carried past her that she's witnessing all this um, and she's writing about it in real time. And she said that there is suffering which no pen can ever describe. Um, Which is like, I was like, holy shit. Like she's she's seeing this all. She's also back... She, I was gonna say she's seeing some shit, Mary. She has. She's seen some shit. That's probably that should we, be written. We, we, on need, her we need to. Yeah, we, we need to keep track of people who've seen the shit and just and just keep track of these people. people seen some shit. You know, I think so. That's, <laughs> that that phrase come quite a bit. Anyway, go on. Um. So she is back in D.C. after the battle and was there when McClellan takes command, and she has high praise for him coming in, much like Rufus Dawes does, much like many of these men do. That there's someone coming in to maybe reshape the like you know get this army into the shape that it needs to be someone that can be their commander that isn't going to be a complete shit show and she says of him he proved himself equal to the task and i think that even his enemies are willing to admit that there is no parallel case in history where there has been more tact energy and skill displayed in transforming a disorganized mob into an efficient and effective army well, not enough can be said about that because if you if you're going to build a strong house, you better have a strong foundation. Yeah. Right. It just seems that a lot of people who um who don't don't particularly care for George McCollum and Mary, and there's definitely people out there. Yeah. As there are a few, right? Who they seem to forget that stuff, and you you know, realize that um that that a lot of that that original foundation was built in exactly. for 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 a lot of for a lot of people who bash him today. A lot of people back then seemed to like him. It's weird how they that did. Works. They did. And, you know, like I get there's like the parrot gun incident. There's a lot of other stuff with McClellan. But the at the end of the day, you know, this is a guy that came in and, and he was highly respected by these people. And she's writing this down, you know, in 1865. So after she's gone through the whole Civil War, she's writing this down how she felt and saying, like, even his enemies would agree he he did this, you know, despite all his faults, he built the army of the Potomac, you know, anyway, she ends up being appointed postmaster and she has to routinely ride 25 miles a day to pick up and deliver bags of letters and packages. And this work was really dangerous. And on one occasion she rides over um, a fellow postmaster who had been ambushed and shot the day before. I mean, who hasn't run over a mailman in their life, Mary? Come on. (laughs) I don't know. I haven't. Well, maybe not. <laughs> God. Um, she's in some, the... I was going to say, you got something what you want to fess something about on the internet? No, I don't need to do confessional right now. Thanks. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> remember, I, remember I told you there was a squirrel? I was actually a mailman. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually wanted by the police. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> anyway. Um, so she's in the Virginia campaigns of 1862. So... You know, second bull run in Tiedem, um Fredericksburg. She's also in Siege of Yorktown. Um, and it said around this time she's started to do some espionage missions. Um, she talks about it in her memoirs, but it's not on her official records. Um, well, this the, thing, espionage. the thing about her, too, is, you know, she takes that that the kind of that horrific injury at Second Manassas. She does. The legs. You know, so she's so th- there's a story where she's she's her horse is shot out so she has to yep. ride a mule or something yeah and she gets she gets thrown into a ditch and she and she breaks her leg and she suffers all kinds of internal injuries and, and these injuries are going to plague her for the rest of her life 
And, and, and that's one of the reasons why she was able to get a pension that we'll talk about later was yeah. war injuries. Yeah. Right? And the funny thing is, is she glosses over that injury in her memoirs. It's so funny. It's like she's almost ashamed of it. And she's like, no, no, I was fine. It's like, no, no, you had a fucking broken leg. Um, after this, she gets into spying volunteers after she saw a spy that was had been hung, the union spy that had been hung. And she was interviewed by a, a panel of high-ranking union officers. So whoever was on that, I'm not sure, but it's very dangerous work. She did really a few, like quite a few interesting missions. Like one time she shaves her head, she blackens her skin with silver nitrate. She wore a plantation suit, as she says, and a black, like a curly black wig. And she went into a Confederate camp at Yorktown disguised as a slave, answering to the name of Cuff. And she mm-hmm. writes about her experiences in the memoirs, like how she was doing one type of labor and her hands got really blistered. So she had to do another type. Um, so she does various jobs. But while she's there, she's, she's you know, you know, thinking in her mind, like how these defenses look, like what does she have to relate to the union when she gets back to them? She manages to make some rough sketches. And McClellan uses these and he learns how to fire upon the rebel fortifications mm. from these sketches that she makes apparently well she's funny because she has another role she plays a, a confederate named uh, charles mayberry yeah um and, and I, what i always got fascinated by by sarah edmonds is the how she comes up with the names oh i know yeah, so yeah there's random. charles mayberry is one of her last ones she does um she's like a like an Irish no, immigrant no, 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 at one point. Bridget O'Shea, uh, yeah. Charles Mayberry, obviously Cuff. You know, <laughs> there's there's so there's so many that she has that it's just, it's just fascinating. Just she's very creative. I'll give her that. No, know? she is, and she's almost like an actress in 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 this role. Um, like she says, I felt just as happy and comfortable as it was possible for anyone to be under similar circumstances. I am naturally fond of adventure a little ambitious and a good deal romantic. And this together with my devotion to the federal cause and determination to us, to assist to the utmost ability to crushing the rebellion. Patriotism was the grand secret of my success. And again, this is a woman who she's a Canadian. She's not even, you know, she's not a U.S. citizen. And Uh she's there and she's saying patriotism was the grand secret of my success. And that's very cool. No, it's, it certainly is. Everybody has their own, their own specific callings, you know? Um, And, and, and as the whole thing went on, you know, the war certainly took its toll on her as her body did kind of, we talked about the injury she had a second, you know, and and, I know you're going to talk about some more stuff that's going to happen to her. That's going to kind of finish her off with this, with this war, but, but certainly um, she gave it all in a million different roles. And it's just another, another fascinating character, no doubt. Oh, oh, she did. And, you know, she's very ambitious. And as you said, she does other spy missions. She's an Irish immigrant woman. Um, she be she disguises herself as a black female slave. All while everybody around her thinks she's a man. She's very convincing with this. Um, at Antietam, she encounters a dying soldier. This dying soldier confesses that she's actually a girl and who had enlisted as a man to be near her brother who had already been killed in battle. And Sarah makes sure she's buried. And that was yeah. one of the most like sad. That's the saddest story I read. Like imagine being a female soldier. You're a sky. You're a female. You're you're a nurse. You're supposed to be a nurse male soldier, and you encounter another soldier 
who confesses she's female, you're also female. And you make every effort to make sure she's buried, right? The other thing about her, she's very religious. This is where Howard's going to come in, obviously. Um, but, but Sarah says the Christian soldier is the best soldier. And this is where in her memoir she mentions Howard. And she talks about a speech that he gives at Philadelphia. She quotes so much of it in her memoir. She clearly really, I think she admired him for being the Christian soldier because that's how she was. She constantly mentions, you know, Bible scriptures and God in throughout her memoirs. Um, so she's very much like the, uh, as I said to you earlier today, Darren, she's very much the female version of Oliver Otis Howard. She certainly is. She certainly is. She couldn't, couldn't run as fast after she broke those legs like Howard <laughs> did. Probably Italy, not, but, no. You know. um, but she mentions Howard a few times, as I said, talks about the speech he gives at Philadelphia, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so on March 20th, 1863, she ends up getting transferred to Louisville, Kentucky, and she's, um, she's there spying again, doing some espionage, and she ends up getting conscripted in the Confederate Army. And she said, I did not despair, but trusted in, in providence and my own ingenuity to escape from this dilemma. Um, she manages to like make it so, and she's in uh, mounted infantry in the Confederate Army. She makes it so her horse gets across Union lines, but then he the horse goes back across, and the rebel captain draws his saber at her, and she ends up just like shooting him. And then at that point, everybody wants to kill her, but she somehow manages to escape. Um, but her horse ends up getting badly cut by the saber on his neck. So she ends up being barred from spying in that area for fear of being recognized. But she does one more, one more mission, and that's to break up the Confederate spying in Louisville, Kentucky. And to do that, this is where she becomes that persona of Charles Mayberry, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So she ends up working with a local outspoken merchant. He's outspoken about his views of the South, which he's very pro-Southern. She manages to gain his trust, and he introduces her to a sutler spying for the South while selling supplies to Union soldiers, and also another agent who is a photographer. And because of this, the spying manages to be found. So that is her last mission, because unfortunately, she goes to Vicksburg, she gets posted near a military hospital, and she ends up coming down with malaria. She can't go into a hospital there, because Frank Thompson is a man, and Sarah Edmonds is a woman. <laughs> And she, she doesn't want to reveal that. So she goes all the way from Vicksburg, Mississippi to Pittsburgh, puts on a dress and admits herself to a hospital. Well, if you want to go to knowingly go to Pittsburgh, Mary, unless you're Bill Belichick, hey, there's no, nothing good going to Pittsburgh. She was desperate. When she's cured, she comes across an army bulletin, which listed her male alias, Frank Thompson, as a, as a deserter, which is punishable by death. And she's going to carry that with her for a number of years, being a deserter. So until the end of the war, she worked as a nurse with the U.S. Christian Sanitary Commission. Um, in 1865, she's going to write her memoirs, Nurses and Spy, Nurse and Spy in the Union Army, um, comprising the adventures of, and experiences of a woman in hospitals, camps, and battlefields. It's a bestseller. Um, and she donates the money to the U.S. War Relief, which is really awesome. She returns to Canada with Linus um, Seeley, also from New Brunswick, um, and she had met him in Harpers Ferry in 1864. They marry in 1867. They have three sons, one who joins the army, and he says he joins because just like Mama did, 
so she was clearly open with her family about the fact she had been in the in the army. 1883, she goes to Flint, Michigan, and she's looking for an old army buddy named Damon Stewart um, from the 2nd Michigan. And she finds him in a dry goods store, and she asks him if he knows what happened to Frank Thompson. And he said, are you his mother? And, he, and she's like, no. And she's like, are you his sister? And she says, no. And finally, she writes down on a piece of paper, be quiet, I'm Frank Thompson. And he's like, what the fuck is going on? And she she sits him down and she tells him, and she's, she asks him, did you ever question my sex? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, at all. But then he says, we jested about his little boots and called Frank our little woman, but he took it all in good part. Can you imagine, can you imagine in all honesty, you know, the, the, these, these soldiers who found out after the fact, right? Yeah. Um, just uh, how, just, just the surprise, just the stuff like, oh crap, what did I talk about? Did I, did I, you know, did I, did I pee in front of her? <laughs> just a little, <laughs> but that's a little thing. thing, you know? Like he said that he looked at her and knew it was him. Yeah. From the way she looked, from how she was, even after, even in 1883, 20 years later, yeah. he knew. That's something that that it was, you know, Frank Thompson was actually the Sarah Emma Ed, Edmonds. Um, so Stewart helps her get her pension. He he does a writing campaign, going writing to all the Second Michigan that are left to get her recognition for her war service. She ends up getting a pension. July fifth, eighteen eighty four, she gets a special special act of Congress grants her honorable discharge from the army for her sacrifice in the line of duty her splendid record as a soldier, her unblemished character and disabilities incurred in service. She gets just a very small cash bonus and a pension of $12 a month. Um, She becomes one of two females admitted into the Grand Army of the Republic. The first was uh, a woman named Katie Brownwell, who's from Rhode Island, and she's buried in Providence, which is pretty cool. I think one of the the coolest things about things, too, is how much her... Michigan guys embraced her. They you know, rallied that's, around that's, her. There's that, there's that story where she goes to that, that, that reunion, right? Yeah. Um, of the second Michigan. And she's, 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 you know, she's warmly recognized and, 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 and so just imagine, you know, you, you think you're done, you know, with Frank, with Franklin Thompson and that you're going to be dishonorably discharged and disgraced and, and knowing that, 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 you know, because of desertion and after everything she did or he did, however you want to call it with this at the time, and knowing that they were good, that, that desertion thing was going to be, was, would be removed and, and that, and she was able to get a pension now. Um, and that took a long time. That took eight years for her to get that. It took yep. a long time uh, to clear those, those desertion charges and to get that pension in 1884. And for her to get the accolades, like you mentioned, about getting to the GAR, um, and and that's how it was a big deal. And, and so it really is. It's really one of those those rare situations where it's like a real like a, a story that someone goes into this war with the best intentions, and 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 as their her role through injury and, and sickness affects it, um, and then be able to come full circle again, and not only kind of have redeemed but be welcomed and, and congratulated by your old peers who you fooled for all that time right because they, they didn't remember a guy dressed a woman dressed up as a man 
they're remembered someone's fighting with them and fighting fighting for them and the stuff they did yeah. and so um and so for her obviously to get that pinch is well deserving in the gar recognition is certainly deserving as well it so it's, it's, a, it's just a it's just a cool story it, just it is. is no she's she's definitely a, a cool female uh that's involved in the civil war and you know she's just a member of the gr for a short period of time because she passes away on september the 5th 1898 and the reason her family knows she does is because her dog jack just barks all of a sudden in alarm and she'd had a stroke so she's first buried in laporte texas which which is where her and her husband had married or moved at one point um and then she is like they dig up her grave like they move her again to houston and she's buried in the military section of Washington Cemetery. She's the only female in the Civil War veterans area there. And she's given full military honors on Memorial Day, which is really awesome. It is, it's good that she was able to get that recognition yeah. while she was still alive. And she's only, she only lived about a year till after she got that GAR yeah. recognition, right? But she was able to live and see it. Uh, that would have been a real shame if she got that posthumously and she, yeah. she wasn't able to do that. So um yeah i mean i think i think she's a she's certainly one um that a lot of people have probably heard the rumor of the legend of without realizing the details of what it was a woman who runs away from an abusive father um who had the ungodly crime of not being a boy yep and what does she do ironically she has to dress up as a she boy she dresses up as a man and goals. she and and i think she does it because of the influence of that book when she was nine years old she's like i'm just gonna go on an adventure and she's so independent and she says she takes some of it from her mother too, which is really awesome. You know, she's in the U.S. Military Intelligence Hall of Fame. She's in the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame and she's in the New Brunswick Hall of Fame, uh-huh. which is really That's cool. She's been recognized by my by my country too. Um, she's definitely a woman whose memoirs I highly encourage everybody to check out. They're available just online. If you just Google the title of it, you can find them. Um yeah, I think like all memoirs, she embellishes a little bit, but I think she's also telling the truth too in a lot of it. Her memoirs are very much like Rufus Dawes that she describes the horrors of war. You know, she she says things weren't all perfect. Um, she talks about her times as a spy, which are not officially recorded. And you can and she says often, I'm on an adventure. I love romance, you know. She, well, I think it's I think it's only fair, being the Canadian that she does, for me to raise my Labatt's blue oh my in her honor. <laughs> yeah. To 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 recognize the great Sarah. She didn't get so. to see that flag, unfortunately, but we are proud to call her ours. That's true. That is true. So um anyway, well she died in eighteen ninety eight, right? She did. So so, so she okay. At least she got to see her country. Actually, yeah, she did get to see the country officially formed. Uh, She did, she did. She moved out of Texas and all that stuff. So I think this is a good place to drop this off. I think, Mary. I think overall, I think this is. We talked about two a pair the 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 dueling Sarahs, you know, uh, both on completely different sides. Absolutely, it's funny how that worked out. You have you have one Sarah who is sounds like a playboy model who has to cover her face and, and she ends up being one of the most notorious type of people to run away with the confederate gold allegedly yep. and then one who um has to come down from canada dress up as a man to fight for the, the country that, that she wants to be her adopted her adopted country yeah um and she ends up getting the recognition and the other one ends up being a complete enigma so anyway so that's a lot of fun so what we're going to do is we're going to do two more okay in two weeks 
Okay, yeah. just like this. We're going to do a different thing next week. We're going to step back into, um, we're going to talk about some different people next week as well. We might have a special guest next week, mm-hmm. Mary, which we'll keep that under wraps for now. Yeah. But I think we're going to be doing another guest. So um, so I think this is a good place to drop this off, I think. I think it's it's fun to do this, especially uh, with recognizing the women of, of History Month and yep. all that stuff as well. And I think it's um, a lot of these people, uh, there, are, there are hundreds of these people just waiting to be discovered that, that, that unfortunately, you, you study the American Civil War, you tend to focus a lot on on the, on the boys in the middle, yep. you do, right? Oh, we uh, could have done and- a whole episode on Sarah Slater, talked about her for an entire hour and a whole episode on Sarah Edmonds. And I hope in the future we can probably do that, you know, because they both mm-hmm. deserve a full hour, each of them. They do. They do. I bet they would have got along. I bet you they would have. They I don't know why. Would've. Opposites attract, right? Who the hell knows? Anyway, so we'll call it a day here. We'll jump off here. So, um, so great job by you, Mary. The research was evidence on this one. It's fun studying one of your, your Canadian peers up there. Um, and uh, it's always fun studying uh, mysterious, you know, mysterious women. It's, it's in a way with it. So it's always a lot of fun. Uh, you, so, did aw- you did awesome yourself. I was like, loved hearing about Sarah Slater and all that you found out about her. And as always, you bring it. And I'm really glad was, we were able to, you know, kind of give these women a bit more of a voice in history. What's good about Slater is this. She's a situation where there might be more stuff might pop up five, ten years from now. That's exactly. great about it. Yep. Or never. Hey, or that never. Confederate gold's got to be here somewhere in Canada. It might be. It might be. We'll see. We will find out. So, all right, Mary. So again, that was a great, great time. Always talking to you. Um, so we will jump off here. So everybody, so live is going to be coming up on Saturday at 10 a.m. as usual. We'll talk about these episodes. We'll talk about some other stuff. Uh, St. Patty's Day is around the corner, Mary. It is. We'll be talking about that. We'll be having a lot of fun with that. Uh, the book club with Lisa Samuel will be coming around the corner as well. Yep. So there's a lot of fun stuff coming down the pike. So any last words from you, Fincheru? Yeah, well, awesome job as always. You're an amazing co-host, amazing person to do this, amazing partner all that and actually just to add on our next round table will not be on the 16th it will be on the 24th i think of march at six o'clock via zoom we will be releasing more details about that to follow but we will probably be doing some trivia for that right around the corner so get your trivia hat ready so everybody thanks for listening we appreciate it have a safe week finish up strong as we head off into the weekend so off we go. So good night, everybody. Have a great weekend. We will talk soon. See you guys later. Bye. <laughs>